you are now listening to the place for biblical end times truth, The Remnant Report. I am your host, The Remnant Warrior. Here, we are dedicated to equipping the remnant for the tribulation that must shortly come to pass, as well as reaching the lost at any cost. The time is near for us to not love our lives even unto death. We serve a risen living Savior, so death is not the end, and we know that we will overcome the dragon by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony, because we love not Some of the information in this video is going to be quite shocking to many people, especially those of you who live in the United States. So let's begin. Manly Palmer Hall was a Canadian-born author, lecturer, astrologer and mystic. He's best known for his 1928 work, The Secret of All Ages. Over his 70-year career, he gave thousands of lectures, including two at Carnegie Hall and published over 150 books. In 1934, he founded the Philosophical Research Society in Los Angeles, which he dedicated to the truth seekers of all time, with a research library, lecture hall and publishing house. Many of his lectures can be found online and his books are still in print. It's important to note that Manly P. Hall was in fact an occultist, a Freemason and a Luciferian. We can see from his writings that he was deeply into the occult and that he promoted Luciferian doctrine and Freemasonry without any shadow of doubt. He basically promoted the deification of man, which is found in all Luciferian doctrine, hence this quotation. He spoke a lot about secrets, secret societies, secret symbols, and the secret language of symbolism, and of course Freemasonry, because he was heavily into Freemasonry. Manly P. Hall also taught that Jesus certainly was not the way, the truth, and the life. According to him, Jesus was just one of many spiritual teachers that led humans into spiritual enlightenment. This, of course, agrees with the teachings of Theosophy and Helena Blavatsky. Manly P. Hall wrote three books about America, The Secret History of America, America's Assignment with Destiny, and The Secret Destiny of America. This description says, Hall reveals how shadowy mystical orders lay behind the seemingly fortuitous birth of the United States, bringing together such forgotten fragments of history as Akhenaten's monotheism, Christopher Columbus's true identity, the London prophecy delivered the year of Washington's birth, and the mysterious stranger who swayed the signers of the Declaration of Independence. Manly P. Hall gives a surprisingly plausible account of the American nation as an occult experiment in enlightened self-government and religious liberty. In this description of the book, it says, Is America an assignment of destiny? What is the symbolism of the Great Seal of the U.S.? Who was the mysterious stranger who swayed the signers of the Declaration of Independence? 
According to Lord Bacon, the new Atlantis seems to have been set apart for the great experiment of enlightened self-government long before the Founding Fathers envisioned the rise of the American Republic. Investigating the often neglected fragments of history, evidence is presented indicating that the seeds of democracy were planted 1,000 years before the beginning of the Christian era. In the book itself we read this. World democracy was the secret dream of the great classical philosophers. Thousands of years before Columbus, they were aware of the existence of our Western Hemisphere and selected it to be the site of the philosophic empire, i.e. the USA. The brilliant plan of the ancients has survived to our time and it will continue to function until the great work is accomplished. The American nation desperately needs a vision of its own purpose. Further down the page, he speaks of the challenge of the leadership of the world. He says the larger problem and the great challenge is in how to set up a new order of world ethics firmly established on a foundation of democratic idealism. He speaks of international ethics and how that the world is now being conceived as one interdependent structure. Many books have been written about the occult origins of the United States and it is rooted in an ancient belief system, i.e. Luciferianism, rooted in Egyptology and worked out by Freemasonry. For example, we see George Bush Jr. surrounded by Freemasons in the White House. We also see the Founding Fathers of America wearing Masonic aprons, which of course is an inescapable fact. They were Freemasons. The Freemasons were also responsible for fermenting the French Revolution. We also see the evidence of Freemasonry on the American $1 bill. And here we read, it is only when we properly understand our past that we can understand where our leaders are taking us today. Only when we truly comprehend the occult heritage which our founding fathers set in place can we understand why America is constantly at war, why our nation forces a perverse brand of democracy upon the world, and why America has always been leading all nations steadily towards the Novus Ordo Seclorum, or the New Order of the Ages, i.e. the New World Order, the Illuminati symbol of which is on the back of the American $1 bill. In 1733, Rosicrucian Freemasonry formally entered America when the St. John's Lodge was established in Boston. It became the Masonic capital of Britain's colonies. By 1737, there were lodges in Massachusetts, New York, Pennsylvania, and South Carolina, all committed to implementing the plan for a utopian New Atlantis. In February 1731, Benjamin Franklin became a Rosicrucian Mason, and in 1734, Provincial Grand Master of Pennsylvania. Franklin returned to England from 1764 to 1775, and discovered Baconian English Freemasonry's secret doctrine to create a new world order or philosophical Atlantis in America. In 1775, Tom Paine, whom Franklin had sent to America to work on the Pennsylvania magazine, argued that America should demand independence from England. Franklin returned to Philadelphia and printed Paine's common sense propaganda. Hager notes that the federalism that finally united the 13 colonies into states 
was identical to the federalism of the Grand Lodge system of Masonic government which had been created in Anderson's Constitution of 1723. In the early 17th century, Sir Francis Bacon wrote his classic work, The New Atlantis, citing America as the ideal location for the fulfillment of the long-held dreams of the Rosicrucians and other forerunners of Freemasonry. Bacon's book was the blueprint for colonizing the United States, advocating that America would become a paradise in which men would follow reason, become gods, and work for a universal world republic that would then replicate the utopian conditions of America throughout the known world. Secret knowledge would be passed on through the generations by Freemasons and other secret societies. As chief of the Rosicrucians and the first Grand Master of modern Freemasonry, Bacon sent his followers to the New World. The Rosicrucians and Freemasons arrived in America in their great numbers during the mass migrations of the first half of the 17th century. A 1910 Newfoundland stamp with this image upon it reads, Lord Bacon, the guiding spirit in the colonization scheme. Because of his influence, Francis Bacon is considered by some to be the real and true founder of America. For centuries, controversy has surrounded this figure who is said to be the illegitimate son of Queen Elizabeth I and secret author of the Shakespeare's plays, the man whom Thomas Jefferson considered one of the three most influential men in history. Since the time of the Great Flood, in the days of Noah, there has never been a nation like America. Never in all of human history has a kingdom arisen with such power, wealth, and influence as the United States. Within 200 years from the day of its founding, America ascended to the summit of supremacy, towering above every other nation on earth with a military armament twice that of all other nations combined, and an economy that controlled the world. Was America's incredible rise to supremacy merely coincidental? Was it providential? One thing is for certain. This land of the plumed serpent was chosen long ago to be the trestle board of an ancient plan. The key that unlocks the mystery of America's secret destiny is a name, Francis Bacon. Sir Francis Bacon, without a doubt, is one of the most enigmatic personalities of the modern era. Born in London at the height of the English Renaissance on the 22nd of January, 1561, Bacon would himself become a Renaissance man of the highest caliber. Before his death on the 9th of April, 1626, this one man within 65 years would literally define the methods of modern science, as well as the parlance of modern English. But perhaps most significantly of all, he would chart the very destiny of what was to become the United States of America. Aside from his many exploits in science, philosophy, and literature, Bacon was a powerful statesman and parliamentarian, holding many titles during his illustrious career, including Attorney General, Lord Chancellor of England, Viscount of St. Alban, and Baron of Verulam, among others. 
He was also a favored courtier and close advisor of both Queen Elizabeth and her successor, King James. Dubbed the father of modern science, Francis Bacon has been hailed by many, including Thomas Jefferson, as one of the most influential men in all of human history. But behind the public veneer of this brilliant man lie dark and demonic shadows. Ironically, Francis Bacon is widely considered within the academic community to be the archetype of empiricism and practical thinking. And yet, if truth be told, this father of modern science can also be rightly considered the father of modern esotericism. It was most likely Bacon who coined the phrase, knowledge is power. But what escapes those who employ this axiom is that the knowledge which Bacon valued most was not empirical knowledge, as they suppose, but rather esoteric knowledge. In other words, secret knowledge is the source of true power. It is no wonder, then, that Bacon himself claimed to be in possession of such secret knowledge, which he attained by his own admission through intercourse with demons. Among his many affiliations with the occult, Francis Bacon was a master Kabbalist. Kabbalah is the Jewish branch of the ancient mystery schools, and like the other branches, its prime objective is the perfection and deification of man, in a word, Luciferianism. For Bacon, the empirical material sciences were merely facilitators of the greater esoteric metaphysical sciences through which secret knowledge could be attained via contact with superior spiritual beings residing outside of the physical plane, beings through whom he claimed to have received the inspiration of his life's work. In order to veil this intercourse with demons from the vigilant eyes of the Roman Catholic Church and political adversaries, he concealed his occultic practices within the sanctum of secret societies, most notably the shadowy brotherhood of the Rose and Cross, the Rosicrucians, of whom Bacon was chief. In fact, there is reason to believe that Francis Bacon was the protege of notorious wizard Dr. John Dee, who was a close friend and advisor to Queen Elizabeth and the devisor of a new brand of sorcery he called Enochian Angel Magic. Aside from being a sorcerer, Dee was a respected mathematician and astronomer, as well as a leading expert in navigation who trained many of the explorers that would conduct England's voyages of discovery. Dee was also a prominent figure within the Order of the Rosen Cross, and was most likely the Order's Grand Master, before passing the torch to Bacon. There are many peculiar stories surrounding the lives and times of both John Dee and Francis Bacon, which are in themselves highly intriguing. But what is most relevant to this analysis was their shared conviction that the legendary empire of Atlantis would rise again in the very land that is now called the United States of America. Dee and Bacon not only shared this conviction, but also labored under the guidance of non-human intelligences to make it so. Before his death in 1626, Bacon wrote a bizarre novel entitled New Atlantis, 
The book would not be published until 1627 by Bacon's personal secretary, William Raleigh, and never in its entirety. The traditional story holds that Francis Bacon was unable to finish the novel before his death, but many of the initiated brethren believed differently, including Manly P. Hall. The New Atlantis was first published in 1627 as a kind of appendix to the Silva Savarum, a natural history in ten centuries. On the title page is a curious design. It shows the figure of an ancient creature representing time, drawing a female figure from a dark cavern. The meaning is obvious. Through time, the hidden truth shall be revealed. This figure is one of the most famous of the seals or symbols of the Order of the Quest. Contained within it is the whole promise of the resurrection of man and the restitution of the divine theology. It is well known among the secret societies of Europe that the second part of the New Atlantis exists. It includes a description of the great room in Solomon's house, wherein are displayed the crests and the coats of arms of the governors of the philosophic empire. It may be for this reason that the writings were suppressed, for these crests and arms belong to real persons who might have been subjected to persecution, as Sir Walter Raleigh was, if their association with the secret order had been openly announced. The New Atlantis is a fictional narrative, but with a non-fictional plot, that may have served as the codex, the very blueprint, for the formulation of the government of the United States of America, and the esoteric organization that would control it from behind the scenes. In many ways, the New Atlantis is a manifesto of the secret society, a public confession, though concealed in a parlance perceived only by the initiated, concerning the construction of a utopian Christian society that would be ruled by a pagan philosophic priesthood, a priesthood dedicated to the doctrine and execution of the Luciferian agenda. The following is a brief summation of the New Atlantis. The story begins with a group of seafaring Europeans who set out on a voyage from the shores of Peru, but after being swept up in wayward winds, are driven far from their intended destination to the shores of an uncharted and mysterious island, whose name, they are told, is Bensalem, or Son of Peace in Hebrew. The seafarers soon discover that Bensalem is a utopian Christian society governed by an order of philosophic priests called the Society of Solomon's House. Which house or college, my good brethren, is the very eye of the kingdom? After a lengthy tale of how Bensalem came to be a Christian nation, involving an ark as an ark of the covenant, the apostle Bartholomew, the Bible, along with some extra-biblical texts and the apostolic sign of tongues, the European strangers are briefed about the old world, the time when Atlantis reigned supreme, and the civilizations of the earth were higher and nobler, possessing secret knowledge and advanced technology. It is revealed to them that Atlantis was what they knew as America, and that there were also great and mighty kingdoms in Mexico and Peru associated with Atlantis. Finally, after much fanfare regarding the chaste and pious society of Bensalem, 
One of the Europeans is afforded a rare audience with an esteemed father of Solomon's house, whose pomp and regality is described in great detail. What follows is a comprehensive briefing of the many technological wonders of Bensalem. Remarkably, the technologies listed on the final pages of Francis Bacon's early 17th century work read like a prophetic forecast of things to come. They include, but are not limited to, deep underground facilities three miles down, skyscrapers half a mile high, wind and water turbines, artificial atmospheric devices, electrical devices, genetic labs, industrial manufacturing, lasers, powerful telescopes, spectacles for the eyes, magnifying glasses, audio amplification, including headphones, advanced firearms and missiles, flying machines, submarines, and holographic projections. After being briefed on the technological wonders of Bensalem, as well as the function of some of the secret agents of Solomon's house. A very telling admission is made. And this we do also. We have consultations. Which of the inventions and experiences which we have discovered shall be published, and which not? And take all an oath of secrecy for the concealing of those which we think fit to keep secret, though some of those we do reveal some time to the state, and some not. What Bacon's New Atlantis truly depicts is a pseudo-Christian society governed by Rosicrucians. In fact, later editions of the book included the subtitle, The Land of the Rosicrucians. The entire narrative of the New Atlantis is replete with Christian jargon, mingled with the language of the mystery schools. This mixture of Christianity with the mysteries is the calling card of the Order of the Rose and Cross, and subsequently of every secret society that has branched out of them, including the Masonic Order. The very emblem of the Rosicrucians, the Rosy Cross, is a flagrant declaration of both their objective and their mode of operation. The cross usually positioned behind or beneath the rose, represents Christianity. However, the rose in its varying configurations signifies the mystery religion. The mystery religion, kept secret by the serpents, the sons of the dragon, since the days of Babylon, and revealed only to the elite among the initiated, is nothing more than the doctrine of Lucifer, combined with the forbidden knowledge of the fallen watchers, first disclosed to their wives and offspring in the pre-flood age. The teachings of this arcane knowledge have since been divided and compartmentalized among the many mystery schools around the earth, including the secret societies of the West. Through the blending of Christianity with the mystery religion, acolytes of the mystery schools, shrouded in a veneer of Christian piety, could operate in secret and without fear of persecution. Also, by infiltrating the hierarchies of Christian institutions, the whole sway of Christian doctrine, practice, thought, and culture could be manipulated and eventually controlled by Luciferian handlers. The idea of a new Atlantis did not begin with Bacon's book. Since the destruction of the old Atlantis in the age before the Great Flood of Noah, 
There has ever been a secret plan to reinstitute the old world order in which the gods mingled themselves with the seed of men and their hybrid offspring ruled the earth. As explained in the previous episode of this series, Atlantis symbolizes this old world order. Thus, the building of a new Atlantis is the inaugural procedure for the inception of a new world order in which the gods return. The adepts in the higher degrees of the mystery schools, both past and present, have always understood this occult principle and have ever been laboring since the beginning to bring about its accomplishment. In his book, The Secret Destiny of America, late Masonic philosopher Manly P. Hall makes it abundantly clear that America was chosen long ago as the site for the rebuilding of Atlantis and the reinstitution of the old world order under the guise of universal democracy, the new world order. Believing this to be so, I dedicate this book to the proposition that American democracy is part of a universal plan. Thousands of years ago in Egypt, the mystical orders were aware of the existence of the Western Hemisphere and the great continent which we call America. The bold resolution was made that this Western continent should become the site of the philosophic empire. One of the most ancient of man's constructive ideals is the dream of a universal democracy and a cooperation of all nations in a commonwealth of states. The mechanism for the accomplishment of this ideal was set into motion in the ancient temples of Greece, Egypt, and India. So brilliant was the plan, and so well was it administrated, that it has survived to our time and will continue to function until the great work is accomplished. As Hall indicates, the discovery and colonization of America did not happen by chance. It was part of an ancient plan to build a philosophic empire, a new Atlantis, a plan whose time had come to fruition in the 17th century and whose agents of implementation would be the Rosicrucians under the direction of Francis Bacon. It is well known that Bacon, along with his influential fraternal brothers, directed much of the colonization of America, as Hall confirms. Bacon quickly realized that here in the New World was the proper environment for the accomplishment of his great dream, the establishment of the philosophic empire. It must be remembered that Bacon did not play a lone hand. He was the head of a secret society, including in its membership the most brilliant intellectuals of his day. All these men were bound together by a common oath to labor in the cause of world democracy. Bacon's Society of the Unknown Philosophers included men of high rank and broad influence. Together with Bacon, they devised a colonization scheme. This colonization scheme of Bacon's included capturing one of the most coveted occultic locations on the planet, the 77th Meridian West, known as God's Longitude, upon which Washington, D.C. would later be constructed. It was most likely fellow Rosicrucian and subordinate in the order to Bacon, Sir Walter Raleigh, who accomplished this task. When once the east coast of America had been thoroughly scouted by Bacon's men, and the important location secured, 
Rosicrucian and later Masonic agents were sent in earnest to begin the colonization of the New World. Bacon's secret society was set up in America before the middle of the 17th century. He made sure that the American colonists were thoroughly indoctrinated with the principles of religious tolerance, political democracy, and social equality. The alchemists, Kabbalists, mystics, and Rosicrucians were the incisive instruments of Bacon's plan. Representatives of these groups migrated to the colonies at an early date and set up their organizations in suitable places. But perhaps what Bacon did not anticipate was that another colonization scheme was at work, one that was being directed by the providential hand of God himself. Freed from the iron grip of the Roman Catholic Church after the Protestant Reformation, and unwilling to bow to the corrupt and tyrannical Church of England, a group of Puritan separatists led by William Bradford boarded the Mayflower in September of 1620 and set out for America. These were truly courageous and pious souls, and genuine Christians adhering to biblical doctrine. When once the pilgrims reached the shores of Cape Cod, after a long and treacherous voyage, they disembarked and fell on their faces before God, making with Him a covenant for themselves and their posterity. Thus, the duality in our country began. On the one hand, Rosicrucians, Masons, Alchemists, Kabbalists, and Mystics were coming to America to carry out the ancient Luciferian plan and build the new Atlantis, while on the other, true Biblical Christians were building godly communities and living in accordance to the teachings of the Apostolic Fathers. But the influx and influence of the secret societies could not be abated, and before long, the course of the colony's future was being plotted in Masonic lodges. Even the Revolutionary War that would lead to America's independence was guided by the Brethren of the Mystery Schools, as Tom Horn affirms in his book, Zenith 2016. That a Rosicrucian Masonic Brotherhood was involved in the American and French as well as European revolutions is indisputable today. As many as 44, though probably a lower number, of the 56 signers of the Declaration of Independence were Freemasons. After the colonists had won their battle for independence, and the United States of America was born, the scope and success of Francis Bacon's colonization scheme would be showcased in the building of Washington, D.C., capital of the new Atlantis. There is perhaps no greater evidence that many of America's founders were initiates of the mystery schools than the layout, architecture, and artwork displayed in the pagan monuments of Washington, D.C. Furthermore, as if to leave a token of their intentions, the Great Seal of the United States was designed to symbolize the work they had begun, but not finished. There is a legend that in the lost Atlantis stood a great university in which originated most of the arts and sciences of the present race. The university was in the form of an immense pyramid with many galleries and corridors, and on the top was an observatory for the study of the stars. This temple to the sciences in the old Atlantis is shadowed forth in the seal of the new Atlantis. 
Was it the society of the unknown philosophers who scaled the new nation with the eternal emblems that all the nations might know the purpose for which the new country had been founded? Benjamin Franklin was the chief representative of the mystery schools in America and the primary orchestrator of the plan that Bacon had set into motion so many years before. I could spend a long time detailing Franklin's involvement with the occult and his unparalleled influence in both the Revolutionary War and the formulation of the government that preceded it, but I will abstain for brevity's sake. Suffice it to say, Benjamin Franklin, like his forerunner Francis Bacon, was engaged in intercourse with demons, and very possibly guided by the agents of the antediluvian world as he labored to build the new Atlantis. Franklin spoke for the order of the quest, and most of the men who worked with him in the early days of the American Revolution were also members. The plan was working out. The new Atlantis was coming into being in accordance with the program laid down by Francis Bacon a hundred and fifty years earlier. The rise of American democracy was necessary to a world program. At the appointed hour, the freedom of man was publicly declared. Democracy is the banner beneath which the Luciferian agenda marches. The doctrine of Lucifer is one of enlightenment and apotheosis. It teaches that through knowledge, man can perfect himself and become like God. Luciferians believe that they are embracing the light, and indeed they are, but it is a light that leads to everlasting darkness. They seek to liberate humanity from the human condition, and yet reject utterly its singular rectification in the Lord Jesus Christ. But above all, they endeavor to reinstitute the golden age and enthrone their own philosopher king, their Bensalem, the son of peace, who the Bible identifies with a different title, the son of perdition. Some Luciferians are overtly wicked, knowing full well with whom they have aligned themselves and against whom. However, the majority of Luciferians sincerely believe that they are members of a philosophic priesthood dedicated to the liberty of mankind. Such were many of the Founding Fathers of the United States of America. What they fail to realize is that the true nature of Luciferian enlightenment is liberty from the law of God and the dominion of His Anointed One. This kind of freedom is vividly illustrated in the second psalm. Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. I believe that the intentions of many of the founding fathers were noble, and praiseworthy. But because of the influence of the occult, a Faustian bargain was made. The seeds of liberty that were sown into the blood-soaked soil of America were derived from the fruit of a Luciferian tree. They would indeed grant the benefits of enlightenment, religious tolerance, political democracy, social equality, and prosperity for a while. 
But when this tree was grown to full maturity, the fruits of its freedom would flower, and the true nature of its origin would be seen. Licentiousness, sexual depravity, pride, corruption, and every form of immorality, the fruits of liberty from the law of God. It is now apparent, nearly 400 years after Francis Bacon initiated his colonization scheme, that the new Atlantis has been successfully constructed according to the blueprint set forth in his book. America was designed to be a Christian nation on paper, but in practice it would be governed from behind the curtains by a pagan society of Solomon's house. Writer and filmmaker Christian J. Pinto elucidates. Bacon's New Atlantis has also been called the land of the Rosicrucians, and that is exactly what America has become, thanks to the secret societies. The rise of paganism in our country is no accident. It was planned from the beginning. But what is the end game for the new Atlantis? What is the prime objective? I believe it is this, to open the gates to the gods of the old Atlantis and reinstate the antediluvian old world order, the hybrid age, when the gods mingled with men. This occult plan for America, according to Madame Blavatsky, is cryptically referenced in one of the stanzas from an ancient Tibetan manuscript called the Book of Dizian. The serpents who redescended, who made peace with the fifth race, who taught and instructed it. Occultic philosophy teaches that even now, under our very eyes, the new race and races are preparing to be formed, and that it is in America that the transformation will take place, and has already silently commenced. Is it possible that the founding of the United States of America has been guided by the same plume serpent entities that, according to tradition, founded the Maya Aztec and Inca civilizations. Like our own nation, these kingdoms flourished with enlightenment and knowledge until they descended into a bloodbath of paganism, despotism, and moral depravity. The serpent godmen that established these civilizations were said to have taught Christian values and are even depicted in some instances with the symbol of the cross on their garments, in their hands, and even hoisted on their backs, as in Quetzalcoatl's case. Are we, as a nation, being guided even now by the exiles of the old Atlantis to prepare the way for the coming of their progenitors in the new Atlantis. I cannot say for certain, but I do know this. The enlightenment and knowledge of Lucifer's light will always lead to death and eternal darkness. There is no political, philosophical, or spiritual concept that can deliver the human race from its wretched condition of sin and death. True enlightenment does not come from Greek philosophers, scientific discoveries, or contact with superior beings. True enlightenment is faith in the Son of God. I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life.
This concludes the Land of the Plumed Serpent series. For more information on the occultic roots of America's founding, read Tom Horn's superbly documented book, Zenith 2016, and watch Chris Pinto's fascinating documentary film, Secret Mysteries of America's Beginnings, The New Atlantis. Reporting for SteveQuayle.com, I'm Timothy Alberino, and that's my analysis. Well, last night, I sort of left you with a revelation that many of you were not prepared to receive. And tonight, I'm going to continue and back it up with a lot of facts. Remember, a lot of the meat of this little mini-series that we're doing this week comes from a book entitled Scarlet and the Beast, written by John Daniel. Now, we've covered a lot of territory, and one of the points that I made is that the beast must resemble with at least 14 points exactly ancient Rome. So we'll begin tonight setting out some of these similarities between Rome and the United States of America. From 100 to 300 A.D., most of pagan Rome converted to Christianity. And when this nation was founded, 67% of America's population was Christian. Christians in Rome suffered severe persecution. Christians in America were fleeing European persecution. Rome, ladies and gentlemen, in its time was the melting pot of the world. And today, one of the well-known phrases is that America is the melting pot of the world. Rome was a democracy based upon a two-party system, the optimates and the populares. And the United States of America, they say, is a democracy. Is Democracy it was really founded as a republic, but today a democracy based upon a two-party system, the Democrats and the Republicans. Rome had a divided balance of power, the Roman Tribune and his Senate. America has a divided balance of power, the American President and his Congress. Rome was based on specific laws. They had 12 tables. America is based on specific laws, our Constitution. Rome protected the rights of its citizens. America, up until recently, protected the rights of its citizens. In Rome, all men were equal. That was the international law of Rome. In America, all men are equal according to the Declaration of Independence. But let me set that straight. All men in the Declaration of Independence were created equal. All men are not equal. And in Rome, all men, even though they said they were equal, were not. Those are facts. Look in history and you will see. Rome had a sordid history of slavery. America also had a sordid history of slavery. Rome was capitalistic. America is capitalistic. Rome practiced abortion as a means of population control. And the United States of America practices abortion as a form of birth control. Rome loved R-rated entertainment. Look at the history of Pompeii. And here in the United States of America, we protect R-rated entertainment under the First Amendment as freedom of speech. Rome had a welfare program funded by taxes. You all know that we also have a welfare budget, and many take advantage of it. In fact, our welfare budget rivals our military budget. Rome had a thriving business in lawsuits. America also has a thriving business in lawsuits. Sports was Rome's pastime. And in America, football dominates fall and winter, basketball winter and spring, and baseball spring and summer. And I know some men who don't know anything more than the sports statistics for their favorite teams. And they think they're brilliant because of it. Ancient Rome's national emblem was the single-headed eagle pointing west. 
America's national emblem is the single-headed eagle pointing west. From 300 to 500 A.D., the Roman Church was weakened spiritually because of pagan infiltration. And after 200 years, the Church in America has also been weakened spiritually because of Masonic infiltration, which is nothing more than the ancient pagan religion of Babylon. So we have not only met 14, ladies and gentlemen, we've gone beyond 14, if you were counting. Most historians also attribute the name America to the explorer Amerigo Vespucci. Freemasonry, however, has a different point of view, and this will be new to most of you. For according to Freemasonry and author Manley Hall, a 33rd degree Freemason, the Indians in Central and South America say the name came from their gods who were peace-loving. For example, the supreme god of the Mayan culture of Central America was known as Quetzalcoatl, a light-skinned god who wore a long white robe covered with red crosses. Carved in the stones of his temples were serpents. Quetzalcoatl was known as the peace-loving serpent god serpent god. The same god in Peru was known as Ameru, the god of peace. He was pictured as a plumed serpent. Ameru's territory was known as Amaruca. The 1895 issue of the publication called Lucifer, a periodical published by Freemason Blavatsky's Theosophical Society, states this, quote, from the latter comes our word America. Amaruca is literally translated land of the plumed serpent. The priests of this god of peace once ruled the Americas. All the red men who have remained true to the ancient religion are still under his sway. And according to author William T. Still, Manley Hall claims that since the serpent is frequently symbolic of Lucifer, it is no exaggeration to extrapolate from this that America may well mean, quote, land of Lucifer, end quote. We already have discussed the hierarchy in Freemasonry and that they consider Lucifer to be the good, benevolent, and peace-loving God. Their philosophy is known as the Luciferian philosophy, and it goes something like this. Man was held prisoner by an unjust, vindictive, and jealous God in the Garden of Eden. He was bound in the chains of ignorance. Man was set free by Lucifer through his agent, Satan, when man was given the gift of intellect, and through the use of this intellect, man himself will become God. That is the Luciferian promise, the promise of Satan to Eve in the Garden of Eden. Now remember, these are all metaphors. I don't believe for one minute that there was a naked man and woman standing by a tree, and a snake came up and talked to them. These are substitutes, symbols for something much, much deeper, much deeper. America is known as the good benevolent and peace-loving nation. We've also discussed the seal of the Illuminati, the unfinished pyramid. Its capstone and its all-seeing eye represents the kingdom of Lucifer. The image of this Luciferian masterpiece makes up half of the great seal of the United States of America. Just look at a one-dollar bill. And Ezekiel chapter 28 verse 12 tells us that Lucifer was the epitome of beauty. America the beautiful may therefore be a sinister figure of speech for Lucifer, the beautiful. Freemason Manley P. Hall states that when Atlantis died, so did the ideal pattern of government. According to Hall, the League of Ten Kings is part of the secret doctrine preserved by secret societies through their oral traditions. Hall believes that when the unifying force of the Ten Kings was broken, destruction automatically followed. 
So complete was this destruction, he writes, that men forgot there is a better way of life and accepted the evils of war and crime and poverty as inevitable. The old Atlantis is gone, dissolved in a sea of human doubts, but the philosophical empire would come again as a democracy of wise men. This connects directly with the protocols of the wise men of Sion. Freemasonry planned long ago to philosophically raise Atlantis out of the sea, and in this new land reestablish democracy as a new world order, Novus Ordo Cyclorum. Masonic author George H. Steinmetz confirms in Freemasonry its hidden meaning that the democratic philosophy of Freemasonry has been traced back to the lost continent of Atlantis. He attempts to prove that Atlantis was a Masonic society by suggesting that the destroyed temples of Upper Egypt are all part of that Atlantean destruction. There, in Egypt, we find their ruined temples, which compared with our lodge rooms, have similar floor plans, the same dark north, and many of the same emblems. And remember, in the Lion King, to the north was darkness and desolation. Finally, Steinmetz says that one cannot understand the universality of Freemasonry without accepting the Atlantean account. Hall concurs. Masonry is a university teaching the liberal arts and sciences of the soul to all who will attend to its words. It is a shadow of the great Atlantean mystery school which stood with all its splendor in the ancient city of the Golden Gates, where now the turbulent Atlantic rolls in unbroken sweep. And I bet you wondered why they named the bridge in San Francisco the Golden Gate Bridge. Now you know. Hall suggests that the antediluvian civilization was democratic, that Freemasonry planned over three centuries ago to recreate a universal democratic society that will philosophically rise up out of the sea, and like Atlantis, join with ten kings to lead mankind in the pursuit of universal happiness. And what is the sea? Remember, the sea is the mass of humanity, great numbers of people. To rise up out of the sea is to establish through revolution. And that's coming. He says that the Christian church has delayed the search for the new Atlantis, and that's why they hate Christians, and Christians, like Orthodox Jews and the followers of the Prophet Muhammad, are scheduled for extermination in the New World Order. And he alludes to the ancient Roman Empire as the last attempt at resurrection of the Atlantean project, and states that another attempt would be made. Now we can see how Freemasonry's planned resurrection of Atlantis correlates with Daniel's prophecy of a revived Roman Empire. Likewise, John's vision of the beast with ten horns representing ten kings is more significant in this regard given the fact that Freemasonry calls for its one-world government to be patterned after the Atlantean League of Ten Kings. Therefore, to locate the headquarters of Freemasonry's new philosophical Atlantis, Daniel's revived Roman Empire and John's beast, we must search for a land that meets the following requirements. One, if old Atlantis was democratic, then new Atlantis will be democratic and most likely be born of Templar French Freemasonry, the father of modern socialism. Two, John's beast and Freemasonry's philosophical Atlantis will figuratively rise up out of the sea in the Atlantic Ocean, somewhere west of the Straits of Gibraltar, where old Atlantis was alleged to have sunk and will be established through revolution from out of the masses of people. Three, if resurrected west of the Straits of Gibraltar, Daniel's revived Rome will be a new land in a new world populated from the territory of the old Roman Empire. 
4, Daniel's uncivilized beast will be born in an uncivilized western land bordered by water. From Daniel's vantage point at Babylon, a land in the extreme west. 5. John's beast will eventually unite with ten kings, as did old Atlantis, or will be divided into ten regions according to the plan or the world model of the Club of Rome. And on its model, the world will also be divided into ten regions. Unlike Edgar Cayce, Manly P. Hall is not looking for ancient Atlantis to literally rise out of the sea, and neither am I, and neither should you, but I know that some of you at least have, are, and will continue to look for the sea as the literal source of the rising of a new landmass, which will be called Atlantis, and you don't understand the symbology, the metaphors. You are looking at the exoteric. Manly P. Hall rather looks to America as the nation that will represent philosophical Atlantis, and so do I. And through my studies, I know for a fact that this is it, for they have made the omission over and over and over again in their writing, the esoteric writings of the secret societies, all of them. In America's assignment with destiny, Manly P. Hall writes, quote, The explorers who opened the new world operated from a master plan and were agents of rediscovery rather than discoveries, end quote. And when Columbus landed upon the beach, instead of planting the flag of Spain, whom he was supposed to represent in his discovery, instead, ladies and gentlemen, this great explorer, who instead of carrying the cross of Christianity upon the sails of his ship, carried the cross, the red cross of the Knights. Templars planted a green flag with a white cross. In a second book called The Secret Destiny of America, Manley P. Hall claims that the unifying goal of ancient secret societies was to create a new Atlantis beyond the Atlantic Ocean in what is now called America. The bold resolution, he said, was that this western continent should become the site of the philosophic empire still explains that America, according to this great plan, was to become the first nation to begin to establish a universal democracy or a world commonwealth of nations. This quest was said to be the most noble pursuit to which a man could devote himself. And ladies and gentlemen, I would have to agree with that statement if it were done honestly and openly and for the noble purpose for which they claim. But we know that it is built upon lies and deception and manipulation, and that the men bringing it about, and it is all men, they do not practice what they preach. They are liars, deceivers, and manipulators. And there is nothing noble about the goal of these scum. The first modern philosopher to promote America as the new Atlantis was Sir Francis Bacon, who lived from 1561 to 1626. He was an English lord and Zionist Rosicrucian. As an occultist well-versed in the great plan, also known as the Enterprise, Bacon concealed the secret doctrine in a novel entitled New Atlantis, in which he laid out the plan for a utopian society to be built on this newly discovered continent. Masonic authors Marie Bauer Hall and Manley P. Hall respectively say of Bacon, and I quote, Bacon is the founder of Freemasonry, the guiding light of the Rosicrucian order, the members of which kept the torch of true universal knowledge, the secret doctrine of the ages, alive during the dark night of the Middle Ages. Bacon had been initiated into the new liberalism represented throughout Europe by secret societies of intellectuals dedicated to civil and religious freedom. Later, when the moment was propitious, he threw the 
the weight of his literary group with the English colonization plan for America, cherishing, as he did, the dream of a great commonwealth in the New Atlantis, end quote. This great plan has been perpetuated by an international group of only the highest initiates of the secret societies, as I have revealed to you over the years.